Okay, we're going to finish up. Going to finish up chapter nine today, and we'll get into chapter ten. Uh, but we'll take a look at your uh, questions for chapter nine, which are very, very nice. Uh, Chris, a great set of questions that you have for this. We'll try to get to all three of those. Uh, but now we want to expand here on um, some of the main parts of chapter nine. And uh, we, we talked about the Gospels and Epistles, level one, level two, and so on. Uh, let me just start with this. This is actually a very crucial issue. And that is, now uh, I'm going to what you said here before we started class, about music being a signifier and so on. So you have nonverbal signifiers. Level two is nonverbal signifiers. It's the deeds and so forth. Now, a question would be, can level two signifiers, which signify meaning really not differently than level one, just a different order of signifiers, can level two signifiers be as authoritative as level one signifiers? So thus we ask the question, is level one always your final court of appeal? And if you don't have a level one signifier, then you're kind of guessing. Or, as Sam Nasker, the executive of the CTCR, likes to say, it's speculation. I disagree with him on that. All right? But he likes to call it speculation, which is an unkind way of what we would call level two significance. Okay? So, um, remember there is a section in the chapter um, which was um, D, thoughts, ideas, and truths as level two signifiers. So, in other words, uh, if you have something like this, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Or, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, a man's heart is sinful from, from his youth. Um, so, that's not an activity. If you say the man, a man's heart is sinful from his youth, it's not an activity. It's kind of a truth. Now, can you get a significance off of that truth? It's not a deed. It just is a true thing. Well, I think you can. I think it's the equivalent of having a deed. So if you say the man's heart is evil from his youth, you'd be reading on level three, sorry, level two, you'd be reading on level two to say, as a result, all people need salvation. Because our hearts are evil from our use. Right? Now, I haven't interpreted an activity or something like that. I've just interpreted a, a true thing. So let, let's put that into the equation. Now we're going to come back. I just wanted to have that in the bag here. I wanted to come back to the issue of whether level one is always your final court of appeal. Now, here's the important point I've got to make with this. 
It is precisely because we do not have any explicit level one passages that we always have arguments about infant baptism. See, there isn't something like baptize all including infants. Okay? So, what you have to do, where are you going to get your arguments for infant baptism? Well, you're going to do level two interpretation like this. Jesus had said, allow the little children to come to me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he put his hands upon them and blessed them. Now, that's not baptism. But we say, if he did that, it shows that the kingdom of God is also for little children, and baptism brings people into the kingdom of God. See, I'm doing a level two. Here's another one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right? Everybody has. So baptism is appropriate for everybody. It's a washing of regeneration. Well, if it's a washing of regeneration, a conclusion would be that, that is to say, a significance could be that this regeneration was seen by the apostles as appropriate for everybody. So, essentially, what you get in arguing... Oh, and by the way, let's not, let's not forget that we'd also add in here doing some filling in of the blanks. Like, house, uh, a whole house was baptized. So we fill in the blank to say, hey, there were probably kids in the house. But you notice how I'm operating on level two. Jesus is really positive to little kids. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and so forth. And so we say, then, for the early church, baptism had significance also for children, and they would have baptized children. But there is not a level one passage. And that's why the argument keeps up. Because instinctively, people have the feeling, I don't think they should have the feeling, but they instinctively have the feeling that level one is your final court of appeal because it's sort of more legitimate or clearer or something like that. And I think the Velt's answer to that is, it's because we have word dictionaries and grammars and we don't have deed dictionaries and grammars. All right? So you don't have something like this. Jesus blessing children. Jesus blessing children. Significance. Baptism is appropriate for children. See, you don't have something like that. If you had a deed grammar, you'd be able to pull that off. But you don't have a deed grammar. Now, it is large, something similar as the doctrine of the Trinity. So you have something like you baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All three are mentioned equally. Therefore, they all have equal status, see? 
but it doesn't say that in so many words. I think you, honestly, folks, you have really got to come to intellectual terms with this issue, is whether or not you will allow level two interpretation to actually inform your belief and practice. I'm going to give you now an example equally close to home. Women in the pastoral office. Can you use an argument like this? Jesus only selected male disciples. And when Judas had to be replaced, they put forth men. Does this mean that in the early church, the understanding was that the pastoral office office was reserved for men? I'm reading on level two when I do it like that. See? These people were Jesus' associates. He talked about uh, uh, forgiving sins and retaining sins and all that kind of stuff. And therefore, the understanding of Jesus and of the apostles was that the pastoral office is restricted to men. Now, that's actually a cornerstone of the Roman argument, Roman Catholic argument. The selection of the disciples. Well, can you make that move? See, is that legit? You're, you know, you're clearly reading on level two. The fact that Jesus selected this has the significance that the office of the keys is given only to men. Okay? Now, as I say, there's a tendency in our circles to call that kind of interpretation speculation. I don't think it is. What I think it is, is it is reading deeds semiotically, i.e., it's interpreting on level two. But your question that you've got to answer is, is that good enough? Okay? Is, is interpreting on level two as legitimate as interpreting on level one? Now, you know what? And here's the, here's the interesting thing about that question. Where would you find an answer to that? It's not in the Bible. There's no, nothing in the Bible. And by the way, when you're interpreting, words are better than deeds. You know, I mean, there's nothing like that. So uh, all of these huge hermeneutical principles are always extra-scriptural, i.e., outside of Scripture. And you are coming and bringing them to the Scriptures. Oz? Teaching moment. This anticipates the discussion in chapter 10 about the two texts. See? So in other words, you're bringing these principles, like the legitimacy of, of your understanding of biblical doctrine drawn from level two passages, you're bringing that to your interpretation of the scripture. And folks, I can tell you this from my experience. You will be in some setting, 
Like currently, I'm on this consultation of man and woman in Christ. And you just have these arguments that are almost non-settleable simply because nobody can decide whether you can do level two interpretation or not as a basis for what you're going to understand the scriptural teaching to be. I actually said this to the consultation. I've mentioned this before to this class when we were doing chapter 6, I think. That one of the things that I said in the first meeting of the consultation is, this group is going to have to decide whether or not it feels that level 2 interpretation is authoritative and determinative. So in other words, would you say that God in his historical dealing with his people, gave spiritual leadership also to women on the basis of Deborah. Okay? See, so there's, there's taking this thing the other way. Instead of using the example of the 12 males to say he didn't do it, let's go the other way. There's Deborah, or there's Esther, or somebody like that. Or Priscilla. So there is a huge amount of stuff at stake on that little question in chapter 9, namely, are level 1 passages your final court of appeal? I would say they generally are for people, but I'd like you to consider in your heart of hearts whether you think you can legitimately appeal to them. My answer is it's semiotics all the way down that there's nothing that is essentially different, essentially different, between interpreting on level two and interpreting on level one. It may be a little more iffy because you don't have the deed grammar, but you're not doing something fundamentally different. Similar, by the way, to this issue is the issue, I just trolled this by you guys the other day, is similar to this issue is whether or not you can found doctrinal understandings of the scriptures on non-literal passages. Okay? So in other words, if you have a parable, can you actually found a doctrine on a parable which is manifestly non-literal? Or maybe something like you are the salt of the earth, something like that. Again, the Veltz answer is always going to be, sure you can, but you probably have a lower level of clarity or something like that. But I would never agree that you can't do it as if you're doing something fundamentally different here. You're not doing something fundamentally different. It's just that with non-literal speech, hey, not all the conceptual signifieds and the characteristics of the reference line up, that's all. Doesn't mean you're doing something fundamentally different. Yeah, okay. Uh, I've just been throwing this around since you started talking about this. Is there a way to rate authoritativeness of second level translations using kind of. Are you the guy who asked that in the paper? No. There's one paper that actually asked that about whether you could rate um, the authority on level two. Um, I mean, using well, your two examples of Deborah and. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. You mean Deborah and, like, the apostles? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is why you argue. Okay? This is why you argue. And the proof of the pudding is always in this eating. 
That's why people can't ever settle anything. Okay? I'm trying to show you what actually happens when interpretation goes on. And somehow, you've got to get to a consensus with other people before there's an understanding and say, if I interpret it this way now, suing, if I interpret it this way, this helps me to explain all of this stuff, including the really important stuff. But if you do it this way, now you've got these other problems. See, that, it's always going to be this totally systemic approach. Okay. Now, um, building on this idea of thoughts, ideas, truths as level two signifiers, and then, remember, there was this extension of significance and so forth. Um, uh, oh, before I get off of the, the truths and so forth. This next thing, I think, is extremely significant for your understanding of the history of the church. It really seems to me that truths, you know, not, not like actions going on in deeds, but just truths, are the basis for so many doctrinal formulations. So, for example, in the book, we talked about Mary as the Theotokos, the mother of the bearer of God, the mother of God. Okay? Now, what is the theological significance of Mary being the bearer, the mother of God? Well, Interestingly, it depends upon which direction you take that reading the significance of that truth or fact. You can take it, the significance, in the direction of what it tells you about Christ. That God is truly human, and that the human is truly God. But what you could do is you could take it in a different direction. What does it tell you, not about Christ, but what does it tell you about Mary? Well, let's say all of a sudden you draw the following conclusion. That she's sinless. See? Now, in both cases, what I've done is I've, I've read the theological significance of the fact of her being the bearer of God. I've drawn a conclusion with reference to her in one case, and I've drawn a conclusion in reference to Christ in another. And it really seems to me that what happens in the history of the church is things start to go off the beam if you start drawing it, the significance, toward the wrong thing. Now, mind you, this is also, this is also the basis of the argument of the filioque, 
This is and, whoops, sorry, can't do Greek, and, and this is son. So, and the son, in the creed, who proceeded from the father and the son. Do we say the filioque when we say the Nicene Creed? Yes. Who proceeded from the father and the son? Do the Eastern Orthodox say it? No. Why? I'll tell you why. It's totally a level two reason. If I say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Greek Orthodox people will tell you, you have destroyed the unity of God and you promote, tend toward a view of polytheism. That you have the Father and the Son, and they are co-equal principles, and the Spirit proceeds. Thus, for the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Father is conceived analogically like a fountainhead from which the Son and the Spirit proceed, but there never was a time when they were not. Okay? There never was a time when they were not. Now, now, f- track with me here. The idea is that by affirming, by affirming the procession from the Father only, as the Eastern Orthodox would do, and I have heard this with my own Oren in Athens in an Eastern Orthodox church, Greek Orthodox church, they are preserving the unity of the Godhead versus polytheism. In the Western church, that wasn't the concern. In the Western church, you have Arianism that's much stronger. And in the Western church, you have a problem of seeing the Son as fully God. Pelagianism also has this problem. So, in the Western church, to say that Jesus proceeds from the Father and the Son is to make the Son equal to the Father. It is an expression of the equality of the two persons of the Godhead, not their multiplicity. Okay? So, in other words, the procession of the Spirit, the fact that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, or Father and the Son, is being read on level two as to what it says either about the Godhead or about the second person of the Trinity. Jim Velt's opinion. I actually think you can affirm both. It depends upon what you're trying to protect. We have got to, so in other words, this idea of the procession is not real, it's not really kind of like this. It's not a documentary depicting the procession. What it really is, is a discussion of something on level two. The Spirit's clearly related to both the Father and the Son. Depends on what you want to further affirm. 
And if someone decided that he wasn't going to use the filioque from the 11th century, because there was a foot, so to speak, a polytheistic thrust, then it strikes me as a perfectly reasonable problem to take under consideration. Now, this is as good an example, in my opinion, of level two interpretation from the standpoint of the, uh, what do you call it, truths or facts or something like that. Not a deed. See, this isn't, this isn't exactly, um, you know, I'm not talking about historical Jesus walked on the water or something like that. Uh, th- this is actually uh, much more a, a truth of the Godhead. Um, so chapter 9, you know, like I say, chapter 9 while not as foundational in a sense like 6 talks about the levels of signifiers, you know, and 8, you get that whole external entailment business. But this is the first entree into sort of the deep questions that start to haunt you about interpretation. And the deep questions, kind of this happens in chapter 8 with the external entailment, this is where the arguments really begin to start. And when you go to some Winkle conference or you go to some district or, or circuit-wide conference and the arguments start, you're going to start to see these arguments gravitate toward external entailment issues, level two interpretation, and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, now, the last part of chapter nine is in our contemporary context one of the most important, and that is this historicity of narrative and allegorical interpretation. And uh, go in your books, please, to chapter 9, and it starts on page 202. So this is section E, historicity of narrative, and allegorical interpretation. Now, the key is that little chart-like thing with the bullets on page 203, where it says, if a narrative is intended as a description of personages and actions in the historical past, the deeds depicted or evoked in the mind will themselves have significance generally for three things. So in other words, I'm telling you I'm writing history. Now, you're going to be able to find significance in three areas. Now, if you're looking up at the screen, you'll notice I've got a bunch of writing here in my book. And the reason for that is I've actually sort of changed a little bit what's in those bullets. So let me pass out a little um, adjustment for you here. That will go in the place of that little paragraph with the bullets. Okay, now take a look at this. So essentially, I have not changed, I have not changed here the material in bold above the bullets. I've only changed the bullets. So, 
if it's intended to be historical narrative, it will have effect on our understanding of human nature and human life as such. That's all the same. Our understanding of historical developments in general, and then this is the big change, number three, our understanding of specific historical acts and of the nature of God and of his relationship to us. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. If you have a story that is intended to tell you about the signing of the Declaration of Independence, okay? Now, this is not, you know, sort of a, a biblical theology, so the part about the nature of God isn't going to be related to it. But if I'm writing to you something about the Declaration of Independence, let's start with the third bullet. You will get an understanding of specific historical acts, right? The signing of the Declaration. Move up. You will get an understanding of historical developments in general, like, for example, what was it like in the late 18th century? You know, did they actually think people should get together and discuss stuff live? Uh, was there email? Oh, no, there wasn't any email. You actually had to do stuff by writing with quill on paper and so on. So you're going to get uh, a, a sort of an ambiance of the time. And then you're also, top one, you're going to have an understanding of human nature and human life as such. So you're going to come to an understanding of, let's say, how people deal with each other. What are the hopes and aspirations of the human spirit? All that kind of stuff. Existential stuff, in other words. So you're going to have understanding for, of specific historical acts, general historical setting and context, and then what humanity is like. Now, I'm going to sort of cut to the chase and then come back and backfill. One of the points of this para section E is to say the following. <clears throat> if you're not doing actual history, okay, so if I tell you I am writing a historical novel like Thomas B. Costain, Below the Salt, about life in the medieval castle. I tell you it's historical fiction. Essentially, you have to knock out the bottom bullet. You don't know about your understanding of specific historical acts. So if I write a historical novel about medieval times, and at some point I say, King John, or no, this nobleman over here, the Duke of Forth, took this girl as his mistress, if it's a historical novel, you have no idea whether that's true. Right? However, what you assume from a historical novel is the second bullet. That it'll give you generally a view of the time. Like there were barons and stuff. That they did take women as mistresses. That there was fighting with swords. That people wore armor and had shields. So you wouldn't expect that the guy would be going off to fight a battle and would get in a Lamborghini. You're not going to have stuff that generally is not true. 
go up to the top bullet. And these kinds of stories will also tell you about, quote, how human beings are. What is humanity like? You will be able to see things like the greed of humanity or man's inhumanity to man or the nobility of the human spirit or something like that. I just said that about historical novels. Now let's say it's not a historical novel. Let's say it's Star Trek. It's fiction. Now you knock off the bottom two bullets. And now what happens in fiction is fiction is essentially about us about humanity. I mean, this was the whole attraction of Star Trek. And by the way, let me just say as a sidebar, I don't mean if something like science fiction is sort of a veiled allegory of what's going on in the Vietnam War or something like that. I don't mean that. I mean if it's about Captain Kirk comes and what they're doing about a planet and stuff like that, and all of a sudden it's actually telling you about humanity. So you might say that it would be possible to do this. We've got the three bullets. Specific historical acts, general context, human nature. Now, when you write the entree point is as low as possible of the three. That is to say, historical, historical writing will enter here and allow you to also do the other two bullets. You'll be able to get a general idea of the times, and it'll tell you something about humanity. If you're doing historical fiction, you enter the system here. It will only tell you about the general context of the time. You're not going to be able to know at any given point, like you read a, like you, for example, you read a, a, a Paul Meyer novel about the time of Jesus, you're not going to know whether or not a particular centurion actually had an assistant or a servant named Marcus or something. You're just not going to know that. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But you will be able to get a very good idea of what the first century A.D. is like and the Roman army. Then if you do fiction, this is your so this is, this is historical fiction. This is history. And this is fiction. In fiction, it is essentially existential. Now, if you'll take a look in your books, <clears throat> at footnote 13, 
This interesting review of film, same thing true of a story on celluloid rather than the story being on a page. <clears throat> true lies, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And look at what it says here. He, he calls, the review in time calls Cameron an 80s style artist brigand who makes ripe allegories, often about a search for a redeemer. I like the comedy potential of the lies, the facades, the allegory of relationships. This movie is about the unknowability of people. See? So you have no idea, you wouldn't be able to say a thing about whether or not an agent of that kind occurred and had that kind of relationship with a specific woman, but it is about the allegory of relationships. Now, I recently found something in the, in the paper. This was pretty interesting. It was a review of, um, this is from uh, USA Today. It was a review here about the horror genre of film um, and that King puts the horror genre right next door, it says on the headline, meaning, you know, it's not like set off in Transylvania. It's what could happen in your neighborhood. Now, I, I want you to look at this. This is really an interesting thing. People don't want to see horror as relevant, but the ones that become classics are deeply relevant. Horror films take cultural anxieties and magnify them. It's always about the struggle for control. In the movies, we don't have control. That's why you scream, look out, and so forth. <clears throat> now, look at down here. Those subtexts are organic to the story, and they always come out if you tell the truth as you understand it. When you're telling the story, you're also telling people, whether you like it or not, this is how I see the world. This is how I believe people to be. And then he goes down here about the, the uh, story, The Mist. Though it was written 28 years ago, also may benefit from accidental parallels to contemporary life. It's tale of strangers trapped in a crisis situation that brings out their best and worst traits could be read as an allegory of everything from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina. Now, you notice he, what he's doing there is he's taking that thing in the second part there, is making the move to what I said about allegory of the Kelber quote about the disciples being portrayed negatively as his criticism of the Jerusalem leadership. See, that's that same kind of idea, where you're doing this story that's fiction, and it's sort of a veiled allegory of historical stuff. Now, I didn't want to get on to that yet, but this article does go in that direction. What the main point that I want to make here is with these three bullets, what you can actually get out of a story, the kind of truths you can get, depends upon what genre it purports to be. I'm going to say that again. What sort of truths you can get, meaning you can get, depends upon what sort of genre the story purports to be. And it's all about what it purports to be, not whether or not it's accurate. Thus I made the statement, 
If somebody is intending to write history and makes mistakes, let's say you had a bad source, that doesn't make it fiction. It makes it bad history. So in other words, you think you can draw conclusions about specific events. Turns out you can't. However, if I'm writing historical fiction, I'm not even pretending to give you specifics about, let's say, Thomas Jefferson, and I'm doing historical fiction of the run-up to the Constitution, or the Declaration of Independence, rather. And it talks about a conversation that he had with John Adams. You actually have no idea whether or not that conversation took place. But you do know that Jefferson and Adams and these guys were around at the same time and interacted and stuff like that. Now that's why, and one of you asked this question, that's why I make the statement in the book, if you take a look at the board, that's why I make the statement in the book. Just because something is fiction does not mean that it is untrue. What it does mean is the truths that it is about are limited. It can only be existential truths. I shouldn't maybe put the word only there. But it's restricted to existential truths about what people are really like. The allegories of unknowability. The allegory of us not being in control of life in the horror films. See? That's how humanity is. That kind of thing. Yeah, those are truths. They just don't happen to be truths about specific historical circumstances. Now you have to watch this point that I'm telling you. Because you will see people, for example, who will want to deny certain historical claiming stories in the scriptures and will say, well, just because I say that it's myth or just because I say that it's historical fiction doesn't mean that it's untrue. This is what they mean by that. It's telling you truths about, of existential significance, what we're like, what God is like, or something like that, which is different than truths about specific acts of history. Now, I would like you to take a look at this is such an incredibly important little line in a footnote. I just want to draw everybody's attention to footnote 16 on page 206, and I have started my book. Page 206, footnote 16. Meyer Sternberg argues that fiction is distinguished from history in its claim to freedom of invention. That's the critical thing. What does something purport to be? Fiction is not distinguished from history in that it has some untrue stuff. History may have untrue stuff. It just happens to be wrong at that point. But fiction claims that it can jimmy around with events and deeds and people and stuff like that. 
for the purposes that it wants to have. So it's the claim to freedom of invention that is absolutely critical. And once you do this, you start, so to speak, moving up this taxonomy. The more you're claiming fiction, the less about specifics it can be. Note, by the way, you may ignore the next 20 seconds if you'd like, but I will make this observation, and that is, note how tricky the category of historical fiction actually is. Because you don't even really know about the general times. I take as my example cowboy films. When I was growing up and watched things like Zorro or The Lone Ranger in the late 50s, the good guys wore white hats, they were always cleanly dressed. The black guys, bad guys wore black hats. They were scruffy. They uh, uh, generally their clothes didn't look as nice, and so forth. We're not shaven. Then came the Hallmark Western, Fistful of Dollars. Clint Eastwood. All of a sudden, the protagonist looks like a bad guy. And from that point onward, you can't tell whether or not the good guys or bad guys are what they are by how they're shaven and, and what they're wearing. Take women's dress. In the 50s, 60s, they always wore big skirts, petticoats, so on, dresses. All of a sudden, you get films in the 90s, they're wearing jeans and packing a pistol. Now, I ask you, I ask you, in 1880, how did cowboys and women on the frontier dress? Kind of depends on what westerns you look at. See? So you're going to have to sort of go to real purported history even to find that out. Now, what I said here is still close enough for government work. Okay, But just recognize that when you're dealing with historical fiction, that can be pretty tricky even on, even on this level right here. Now, that business of historical fiction is sort of the latest thing in biblical interpretation as far as considering the Gospels and the historical books of the Old Testament is not to talk about them if you don't want to have a sort of full-blooded historical reliability kind of thing. Not to talk about them as fiction or myth or something, but to talk about them more in the category of historical fiction. Now, I want to read you a quote from Francis Watson's book. It's a tremendous book, this book. Uh, it's called uh, Text, Church, and World. Biblical Interpretation and Theological Perspective, and it's by Francis Watson. came out in the early 90s. Now, Watson says the following. He's talking about whether saga or legend could be applied to biblical stories. And he says this. The text may or may not render faithfully the details of empirical history, but they do render faithfully 
the history of the relation of God and humankind. And it is in the light of this function that they must be interpreted. So in other words, they tell you about things like, we are estranged from God, or you know something like that. Well, you notice how that's up here. See? That's up here, this kind of category. So what you're going to generally get, if you're thinking of things, he's, uh, he explores around in this book, whether saga, um, whether it is, in another book of his, Text and Truth, he talks about um, uh, more the historical fiction kind of side to it. Um, uh, you're, you, you lose this focus and you start coming up here. Uh, I have one more quote, by the way, on this that I'd like to share with you. And it is from um, uh, John Golden Gay's um, book on Scripture and Tradition. And he says the following. Let me just get you this quote. Now, this is, uh, this is really interesting. Paradoxically, it may even seem that the more realistic and detailed an account, the higher the illusory effect of the text, the more fictive the text, the closer the approximation of a universal truth. That's what we're talking about. You see something as fiction, it talks about universal truths. That was a quote from page uh, 75. Now, listen to this one a couple of pages before. Fictional worlds function as models. This is just a great quote. <laughs> Fictional worlds function as models whereby we explore the possibilities of understanding and living in the world. Well, that's, that's existential setting and truth. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But the claim of Christianity is that what we believe, teach, and confess is not just a story that tells us about our being in the world, about how people are, about existential truths concerning us. No. We say that there are specific historical acts which fundamentally change the course of this world and fundamentally in those acts change the relationship between God and man. And I'm thinking of the crucifixion and resurrection. In the crucifixion and resurrection, the new cre sins are actually forgiven and the new creation actually begins to be instantiated. This is not simply an expression of a truth about ourselves, such as we have problems that need to be overcome, and there is the possibility of new beginnings. All that may be true, okay? All that may be true, but that's only here on the existential side. 
the confession of Christianity, and indeed of Judaism, is just so much more than that. It is a confession down to specific acts that tell us about the nature of God and our relationship, but not only tell us about that nature, they establish that relationship with God. So in the crucifixion, there's actually an atonement for sin. In the resurrection, there's actually a beginning of the new creation. That's why there's a lot at stake about whether or not things that are purporting to be historical, i.e., the Gospels, are actually historical. When you take them as historical fiction, they can't do that specific act kind of thing and what that establishes for you. If I may just put up on the screen here once again that third bullet. When you have specific historical acts, they have significance for our understanding, uh, specific history, uh, for our understanding of specific historical acts and of the nature of God and of his relationship to us. So you're going to get that with and historical understanding of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, um, I went on too long about this, but this is actually highly significant for a sophisticated ability to be able to read things that are sort of subtle tweakings to our understanding of the documents that we read and what you're going to be sort of able to get out of them. And by the way, this business of the allegory, let me end with this. Remember how I said with that Werner Kelber quote where you have the story of, you know, it's so critical in Mark about the big three, uh, James and John and Peter, Peter, James, and John. And he says it's sort of an allegory of, it's criticism of the early church. See, that's reading on level three. So when, when you see the thing that, that way, it's transparent to text production and its circumstances. It's not telling you about Jesus and the big three. It's telling you about Mark and the leadership of the Jerusalem congregation. That's why it becomes an allegory of that. It's a level three move. See, I'm always trying to analyze this in terms of these levels of signifiers that we've been able to work with. Okay, I got your papers for chapter 10. We move into chapter 10 on Wednesday. And this is a significant chapter with the idea of the two, um, uh, the interface of the two texts with self as text.